You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 139. Today we begin a long series of episodes to finish out the year, all focusing on the Western Front during 1917. I will be honest and say that I have held these until the end of the year because I was suffering from some serious Western Front fatigue at the end of 2016, after the Somme and Verdun took up so much time. However, we are back in the West now, and the next nine episodes will cover three primary topics, the first of which is the spring offensive launched by the British and French. These actions would contain the battles of Arras, the action at Vimy Ridge, and the offensive that would come to be called the Nivelle Offensive. Once this attack is over, we will discuss the French Mutiny of 1917, which saw the French army almost collapse, and after the mutiny we will shift our focus north to cover the Third Battle of Ypres, which will then culminate in the Battle of Passchendaele. Most of that is in the future, though and today we will be focusing on setting up all of those various actions, and that means taking it from the top of the year, and a bit at the end of 1916 as well, as the British and French were deciding what to do in the year ahead. We will also discuss how Joffre was replaced as French commander, and then talk about Nouvelle and his new plans for the coming year, a year that he believed would bring a victorious end to the war. To begin our discussions of the 1917 offensives, we have to turn back our clocks all the way to right around the time that the battles of the Somme and Verdun were winding down, in November 1916. It would be on the 15th of that month that the Entente leadership would get together to discuss their plans for 1917. This meeting would contain both military and political representation from nearly all allied countries. These two groups would sort of break off to start, and in the political meeting, the political leaders of Britain and France, including Asquith, Lloyd George, and Briand, would all get together and agree that they should be taking more initiative and asserting themselves more in military matters. For the British politicians, this meant continuing to push for more help to be sent to the Russians, and attacking out of Salonika and into the Balkans. Unlike in previous years, they found some support from the military side when it came to attacks against Bulgaria. 
The support came from Joffre, who believed that Russian and Romanian troops should be used to attack from the north, while French and British troops would advance from the south. Remember, this was in that brief window, after Romania declared war but before it was crushed by the combined armies of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Bulgaria. This attack on the Balkans would be just one piece of what Joffre hoped would be a coordinated series of attacks from all of the countries against the German and Austro-Hungarian armies. This was pretty much the same plan that they had for 1916, before the Germans had started that whole kerfluffle at Verdun. To try and make sure his plans were not preempted again, Joffre wanted to start the attacks in February, but the other leaders were hesitant to commit to such an early date. They were still trying to catch their breaths from the events of 1916, and believed that they could not do any sort of large attacks until spring. We know that many of these planned attacks would fail, because we've already covered them in our episodes. The Romanian attacks would not even be launched after their collapse in December. In Russia, any efforts were put on hold due to the revolution, and when they were finally launched in, a, in June, their efforts were anemic at best. In Italy, these plans would result in the 10th and 11th battles of the Asanzo, which would see the Italians at a high point. They would push the Austrians back and push them to the breaking point, but they were not victorious. That just leaves us to cover what happened in the West as part of this grand scheme. While the British and French had got their grand strategic plans on the table, there was also detailed planning to be done that involved just their two armies. They began with an outline of a plan that had initially been created way back in September, with the main focus of the 1917 attacks being around the Somme battlefields of 1916. To the north of the Somme, the British would commit two armies, while in the south, the French would commit three. There would also be other attacks along the front, with the French sending an army at the Chem de Dame near Reims, and then the British planning to attack in Flanders later in the year. The, this attack would actually morph into Third Ypres, but it was seen a bit differently at this time. At this point, Nivelle was still the army commander in charge of the Verdun front, and these attacks in this area were not part of Joffre's plans, and Nivelle would suggest more plans, but then he would reject him. He did give Nivelle the consolation prize of telling him that he should put pressure on the Germans around Verdun, but that he would not be launching a full-blown attack. Along with future plans, the French also spent some time reorganizing their army. During the winter, each of the French army divisions was reduced from four to three infantry regiments, and their heavy gun complements were increased. While the raw manpower was lower in each division, they were given greater firepower capabilities to try and compensate, with more machine guns and the new 37mm gun given to each infantry regiment in the front lines. Along with this reorganization came about what would turn out to be Joffre's last memorandum on offensive doctrine. This doctrine revolved around attacks occurring on a wide, as wide a front as possible, with the goal of reaching the enemy's artillery line. By this point, Joffre was of the belief that these attacks should be done in well-thought-out methodical stages, because that was the only way to work through the layers of German defenses. Each attack should be well-thought-out and supported, but the time between them should be kept as short as possible, to prevent the Germans from recovering between blows. This was also part of why he wanted them done on a wide front, to prevent an easy German response. It was also around this time that the first widespread reports of reduced morale in French units began to be noted by censors who were monitoring letters sent by the soldiers from the front. While at this time it was a small trend, it would be very important in just a few months. While all of the initial planning was done in November, by December the situation began to change rapidly. 
The first domino to fall was Romania. On December 6th, Bucharest fell, ending any hopes of an offensive against Bulgaria from the north. This was just the last straw for Joffre. The French Chamber of Deputies had been in meetings from November 28th to December 7th, and on that final day, Brand realized that if he hoped to save the government, he would have to find a way to remove Joffre. This was not entirely due to Romania, um, but it was just a long series of problems, and the French were just done with Joffre. But even at this late stage in the war, and after all of the French failures, the French political leadership could not just dismiss Joffre. He was still just too much of a hero in the country. Instead of pursuing his removal, they instead pulled the same trick that Joffre had used to remove Patan from Verdun. They promoted him. Since there was not really a position to promote Joffre to, they had to create one. And this new position was given the role of coordinating the military efforts on the various fronts where French soldiers were participating. This position offered to jo- was offered to Joffre, as well as a promotion to Marshal of France, both of which he would accept. Briand would also replace his minister of war, which allowed him to barely survive a vote of confidence, just barely. These changes would give the government a respite, at least for the moment. For Joffre, the war was basically over. As it turned out, his new position had no real power, and he had nothing to do, really. Joffre seems to have accepted this, and spent the rest of the war barely involved. He would prepare his voluminous memoirs, and also spend a lot of time visiting allies, but he would not play an active part at any point in the rest of the war. For Joffre, the hero of the Marne, it's kind of an anticlimactic way to exit the stage, but when compared to how his successor would exit the stage, it was not too bad at all. Joffre's replacement was General Robert Nivelle. Nivelle was an interesting choice. He was certainly not the most senior option. Joffre's chief of staff de Castelnau took that crown. He was also not the most experienced, with there being several senior French generals like Patan who had been in command of corps and armies for the entire war. All of these options fell into three broad categories. They were either not very highly regarded by the rest of the army, they were Catholic, or Briand just didn't like them. Nivelle was well known, both in the military and in France, due to his role in the capture of Douaumont and Vaux at Verdun, and then the follow-on successes of the French offensives near the end of that battle. The French did not at this point fully realize what we do today, which is that by the time Nivelle was launching these attacks, the German army had already shifted most of its strength elsewhere, which inflated Nivelle's victories beyond what normally would have happened. Nivelle was also recommended by Joffre to be his replacement, which carried at least some weight. To say that history has not been kind to Nivelle would perhaps be an understatement. We have even recorded his greatest failure with his name attached to it. It would be like calling the Battle of the Somme Hague's offensive. But Nivelle had some serious shortcomings that the French should have been well aware of. Here is Robert Dowdy from his work Pyrrhic Victory to explain. Quote, with the outcome of the war at stake, France's political leaders had placed all of their bets on an officer with no experience as a strategist, little understanding of how to work with allies, and only six months of experience as an army commander. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. 
Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. One thing that Nivelle was not lacking was confidence, and right up until the end of his stint as French commander, he would maintain that confidence. Overall, what Nivelle planned to do was different from Joffre, sort of. At least what Joffre was trying to do in 1917. The differences between the two generals was Nivelle's belief that instead of a series of successive efforts, the correct path was to do it all in one continuous thrust. In his work, Breaking Point of the French Army, the Nivelle Offensive of 1917, David Murphy gives a bit of information about why this was the case. He abandoned the idea of an offensive across a broad front, composed of a series of slow and ultimately costly attacks. Successive attacks in such methodical battles had proven ineffective, as it allowed the enemy time to regroup and counterattack, and also to gather artillery to counter further allied attacks. Instead, Nivelle wished to expand the methods that he had perfected at Verdun. He would mass artillery in order to devastate, and then go forward. In the First World War, John Keegan would go into a bit more detail. Nivelle was an officer of the artillery, by 1917 the premier arm of trench warfare, and he had convinced himself that new artillery tactics would produce rupture. Under his control, a a vast mass of artillery would drench the German defenses with fire that, quote, across the whole depth of the enemy position, end quote, destroying the trenches and stunning the defenders, so that the attackers advancing under continuous barrage and bypassing surviving pockets of resistance would pass unopposed into open country and the enemy rear area. A key point of this attack was that Nivelle was focusing on a much narrower front than Joffre. One historian I have read would describe the differences by saying that Joffre was using a steamroller, while Nivelle was wanting to use a sharp sword to get through the German defenses. All of these advances would also be done very quickly, and he believed that it should take not more than 48 hours to penetrate the German lines. Once they were through the lines, Nivelle would push a large maneuver group through the rupture, and they would begin a series of lateral attacks to roll up the German line. Nivelle himself would write that this objective is the destruction of the principal mass of the enemy's forces on the Western Front. This can be attained only by a decisive battle, delivered against the reserves of the adversary, and followed by intensive exploitation. It is important to note that Nivelle was saying that the primary point of his attack was not to gain territory or a specific geographical advantage, but instead to destroy the German army. This is the same goal as Joffre and other generals had landed on by the end of 1917. Nivelle just thought he could do it far faster by getting out of the trenches. 
When I read the descriptions of what Nivelle was planning to do, I cannot help but compare it to the French strategies of 1915 in Champagne and Artois, where they believed that they could start attacking and keep attacking, mostly ignoring the logistical and exhaustion issues that would come along with trying to keep an attack going through the German positions. There were some differences between the two strategies, but only in details. It almost seems like a pipe dream. Nivelle just seems to have believed that if he hit the Germans hard enough in one spot, he could easily punch through the lines and then Bob's your uncle, you're home by Christmas. With their new leadership, and especially Nivelle, the French really needed to make some changes to the plans for 1917, but this did not change the French reliance on the British, and Nivelle still needed them for two separate reasons. The first of these was because he needed the British to take over more of the front. He was hoping they could take over 32 kilometers. At this point, the French were still manning the vast majority of the Western Front, and as the British army had grown so much in the previous 12 months, it only made sense to the French that the British should take over more of the line. Haig initially only wanted to take over 13 kilometers, but he was eventually talked into the whole 32. Nivelle also needed the British to attack, which they had agreed to do. Much like Joffre before him, Nivelle also really wanted the British to subordinate themselves under him, and also much like Joffre, he would fail to make this happen. Instead, all he got was the agreement of Haig that he would attack in Arras just like he had agreed to do with the previous French general. There was another meeting in Calais in February, where Nivelle's plan was discussed with the British in some detail. At a high level, and we will dig into the details of the plan next episode, Nivelle just planned to attack south of the Somme and on the Chem de Dame. He was also building his plan on three assumptions. The first was that the methods that had worked so well for him at Verdun when he was attacking with just a few divisions could be scaled up to be successful for an entire army group. Second, that the French army's ability to launch a hard, fast, and surprise offensive would overwhelm any possible German defense and plans. Finally, and this is the really big one, that the basics of his strategy was not dependent on terrain or German positions. It could almost blindly be applied anywhere along the front. With these assumptions in mind, let's talk a little bit about where he planned to attack. The south of the Somme was pretty much what it was in 1916. But on the Chem de Dame, this was a ridgeline on the An River that was about 40 kilometers long and at least 180 meters high. It was apparently named the Chem de Dame, or Lady's Path, because it was a favorite riding path of the daughters of Louis XV. Just the fact that the ridge was 180 meters high was problematic, because even if the infantry could take the ridge, which was no guarantee, it would be hard to move the artillery and supplies forward to support them as they continued to move forward. Just to make things a bit more difficult, the French would have to be attacking over and around the Anne River. The French did have a 20-kilometer wide bridgehead over the river, but for the most part, the eastern bank was controlled by the Germans and would have to be taken during the attack. On top of this, the Germans had of course spent a good amount of time preparing their defenses, and they would be ready. Nivelle ignored most of this. He insisted that his methods would work even in this difficult environment. In fact, he expected them to work in just a few days. While Nivelle had the military situation, at least he believed, on lockdown, at this point in the war, after the huge defeats of 1915 and 1916, it was critical to get and maintain the support of the political leaders of both France and Britain, and this would be a constant challenge for Nivelle in the early months of 1917. Before we get to some of those discussions, though, let's quickly jump back to the requirement of the attack that the British had to support it. To gain full support of the British both politically and militarily, Nivelle would go to London in mid-January. 
There, he would meet with the British War Cabinet, including the Prime Minister Lloyd George. Lloyd George had always favored a solution to the war that was as far away from the Western Front as possible. For 1917, this meant support for an attack out of Italy or an attack out of Salonika. Lloyd George favored the Italian option, and believed that was the best path forward for 1917, with the British and French just sending a whole bunch of artillery to Italy, where the Italians would use it to smash through the Austro-Hungarian defenses. This would take the Austrians out of the war, hopefully, and would leave the Germans to stand alone, isolated from their allies in the Middle East and the Balkans. Even though this was Lloyd George's preference, he had not yet consolidated his support enough since the creation of his new government in late 1916, and this meant that he did not really have the power to push for anything, not yet at least. When Yvel met with him in London, he apparently wooed the British Prime Minister quite easily, and the rest of the British War Cabinet along with him, and they put their full support behind the plan. His talk of sweeping movements, of cutting through the German lines with artillery to create corridors to allow a massive maneuver into the enemy rear was all very good-sounding ideas, and very seductive at a time when all that the British had to look forward to was another year of attrition, maybe two years, maybe three years, who knew. But that all rested on Neville's ability to make it happen. While Nivelle had the full support of Lord George, he still had to work to properly coordinate with Haig and the BEF. Saying that the British and French would coordinate their attacks was easy. Actually making it happen was something else entirely because the devil was in the details, and it started with a simple question, when should the attack take place? This conversation almost immediately led to changes. While the initial February start date was pushed back to mid-April, very quickly when the conversation started. On February 27th, a meeting was held, and it went back to the good old topic of unified command. In this instance, the representatives of the two countries met, and during the course of the meeting, Lord George was given a note asking him to put the BEF in Hague under French command. There were benefits to this arrangement. Coordination would be far easier. But at this point, the conversation was strictly political between Lord George and Briand. When Haig and Robertson, the British chief of the general staff, found out about the note, they exploded. That night, they met with Lloyd George in his room and made it very clear that this was not a situation they were in favor of. Haig made it very clear to Lloyd George that he believed that any government that put the BEF under French command would not long stay the government of Britain. Haig and Robertson would also discuss the matter in private and considered resigning if any move was made to subordinate the BEF. These threats alone would have made the proposal almost entirely dead in the water. The next day, Haig discussed the matter directly with Nivelle. Later, Haig would write that Nivelle was appalled at, quote, the insult offered to me in the British Army by the paper which Beyond had produced. They assured me that they had not seen the document until quite recently, end quote. Like several other pushes for unity of command, this move had failed. For the rest of Nivelle's tenure as commander of the French armies, his relationship with Haig would be described as icy. There would be no great coming together for the common good in 1917. That would have to wait for the next year. Up until this point, things had been going pretty well for Nivelle. Sure, he did not have command of the British armies, but they were going to help, and that's what really mattered. He had the full support of the French political leadership. Things were looking pretty good. Then something happened that completely caught the British and French off guard. The Germans retreated, voluntarily. In early March, the commander of the French Northern Army Group, General Franchette Desprez, noticed that the Germans were preparing to withdraw. He did not know the full extent of what was about to happen, but he knew that the Germans were getting ready to pull out. 
In fact, the Germans were about to retreat from most of the Neuhaus salient, a fully planned retreat that brought their armies back into the Hindenburg line. Even after the retreat began, Nivelle refused to believe that the Germans would retreat on such a large scale. This was especially true of the German positions in the Noyon salient, because it represented the closest German positions to Paris. This seemed like madness. D'Espray pushed Neville to scrap his plans for later in the spring and instead launch a surprise offensive with everything he had at the moment. This might have caught the Germans off guard and turned their planned retreat into a wider victory for the French, but Nivelle refused. He told D'Espray to keep up some pressure on the Germans as he moved back, but not to launch any large attacks. With the Germans voluntarily vacating the salient, the future of Nivelle's offensive should have been a bit in question. The entire point of the plan, of the British attacks in Arras in the north and the French attacks in the south, were designed to meet on the eastern side of the Noyon salient and trap the Germans, and now that salient no longer existed. Even with this wider objective now gone, Nivelle would just put more focus on the Chem de Dame. I quite like this quote from Breaking Point of the French Army by David Murphy, when discussing Nivelle's reaction at this moment. Quote, It was a classic example of strategic tunnel vision. Having formed a plan, Nivelle seems unable to deviate from it, despite the operational advantages of doing so in this case. It was a problem that would resurface later. End quote. Next episode, we will continue our story to see perhaps when that problem would resurface. Piccadilly, farewell, let us dwell. It's a long, long way to Tipperary, but my heart.